This morning we'll be reading from Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, the verses 1 to 11. And you'll be able to find that on page 1252 of your pew Bible. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Here Luke is writing. He's the same Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke. And we read, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his sufferings by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the end of all the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will also come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So far, the word of God. The focus of our sermon this morning will be on the text, the verses 4 to 8. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a sad thing to say goodbye to someone you love. That's especially true if you know that it'll be a long time before you see them again. Or that you may never see them again. We're much more globally minded these days, so perhaps we're better at goodbyes because it's more likely that we'll see our friends and relatives again. But it was the case that even 10 years ago that if you had family that's especially dear to you that visited from the Netherlands or Australia or elsewhere, it was likely that it had been at least half a decade or even a decade since the time you'd seen them last. For the disciples of Jesus, it was no less different. He had said goodbye to them and had ascended into heaven, blessing them, yet they could scarcely believe that he was gone. Their Lord, whom not even death could separate from them, had now departed. And it says they stood there looking steadfastly towards heaven as he disappeared. Their eyes were fixed on him until he disappeared from sight behind a cloud. And they strained to see if they could see more of their beloved Lord beyond that. It speaks to how precious he was to them. He had been their mentor, closely discipling them every day 
for about three years. But more than that, he had proven to them from the scriptures that he was their Messiah, the Savior of Israel. He was their Savior. They had seen with their very own eyes what he had gone through on their behalf, and they loved him for it. We today love him for it as well. Reflecting on Christ as our ascended Lord today reminds us where our Lord is. It reminds us that he is there on our behalf. It also reminds us of the task that he calls us to. And so today we'll consider those three things under the following theme and points. Our Lord ascended on high. First, he ascended to a kingdom not of this world. Second, he leaves us with a task. And we'll see third, how he remains with us in that task. As we look at our text this morning, you may have noticed that just before his ascension, the disciples asked the Christ, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, there have been some who argued that this showed a serious misunderstanding of the nature of Christ's work. Still, after all that the disciples had experienced, they say, the disciples were still expecting a political kingdom. Christ's death had extinguished their hope for this for a short while, but now that he had been resurrected, their hopes for Israel's independence were renewed. Certainly, the disciples had been mistaken along these lines before. But with Christ's arrest and the shocking events surrounding his death, that gave them a serious reality check. And that would have been compounded by the fact that Jesus hid nothing from them after the resurrection. Before, he had hinted at his death and the reasons for it. He had spoken about the Son of Man needing to be lifted up. But he spoke pretty cryptically. And so they could be forgiven for not understanding something they would not have, rather not have believed. After his death, on the other hand, he dropped the veil. He spoke clearly. No longer was there a need for parables or a need for hidden language. As with the case of his appearance to the disciples or as with the case of his speaking to the crowds up to the time of his death. Instead, as with the case of his appearance to the disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, verse 27, he explained to them very plainly that everything that he and that they had experienced was necessary for the furthering of that plan of salvation. My kingdom is not of this world, he said before Pontius Pilate. And the fact that this kingdom wouldn't come in its fullness until the end of days, which he had explained to his disciples time and time again throughout his ministry, was something that they would be vividly aware of now. In light of that, it seems highly unlikely that they were still expecting a political kingdom. So what were they expecting then? To, to understand that, we need to take a look at what they were responding to. Jesus had just said to them to wait for the promise of the Father, which we read in verse 4, which he said, you have heard from me. 
For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, it says, because of the kind of language he was using, they asked him about the future. When is this kingdom coming? This kingdom that Jesus spoke so frequently about. Were the end times upon them? Were they about to happen? Was the kingdom of God going to come crashing into the world with the coming of, this, of his Holy Spirit? I think that because we're so far removed from where they were, we sometimes miss the fact that the disciples were also looking ahead to the end times as something that could happen any day. They too were eagerly waiting for the day of judgment. This seemed to them especially likely with the return of Jesus and the promise of the Spirit. After all, where do we read about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? Open your Bibles with me for a moment to Joel 2, verses 28 to 29. Joel chapter 2, the verses 28 to 29. And you'll be able to find that on page 1053 of your pew Bible. What do we read there? It says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. This is a prophecy that Jesus, had, Jesus said in our text will soon come to pass for them. These are the effects of Christ sitting on his heavenly throne in his kingdom. But what do we see in the verses that immediately follow here? It says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Oh, so that's what they were expecting. Suddenly their question doesn't seem that rushed or presumptuous or foolish anymore, does it? In fact, in light of that passage, we would probably be asking the same thing. But what does the Lord say to them instead, in response, in our passage here in Acts? He says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. The kingdom will come, and the kingdom has already begun breaking into this world. But our Lord Jesus Christ teaches us here that there are certain things which need to come to pass before his kingdom will come in its fullness. 
And that's the spreading of the gospel. And this is that gospel hope. That Jesus Christ, before the eyes of his disciples here, having accomplished everything on earth that he came to do, having suffered and died for the sins of those who ought to have suffered and died, having suffered and died for the sins of those who put their faith in him, that this Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven and he reigns there as Lord and as King. He rules there. As we read in Matthew 28, all authority, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. With that, we can have the knowledge that all things work to our good for those whom God has called. Because He is in control. He rules. He reigns. All things work towards our salvation. And beginning in Jerusalem, then spreading to include the wider region of Judea, then Samaria, and then the ends of the earth, this gospel news of Jesus Christ will spread with power. And the fuel for that rapid and powerful spread, Jesus Christ says, will be the working of the Holy Spirit himself. That is what will happen between those two portions of Joel's prophecy. The spreading of the gospel is ushering in the end times. But the kingdom will not come in its fullness until all of the elect of God are brought in from the far corners of the earth. And it's not for them, and it's not for us, to know when this work will be complete. All we need to know is that it can come at any moment. And that in the meantime, Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning and carrying his elect through this world, having patience with this world until all of the elect are gathered in. And so we're spurred on, we're doubly spurred on by the Lord's words, you shall be witnesses to me to to the ends of the earth. And that brings us to the second point. As his ascension is followed by his being seated in the heavenly places as our king and ruler over all the earth, from there he watches over us as we carry out this incredible task and privilege. But what does this task look like? The word that is used for bearing witness here is the Greek word, martures which has the same root as the English word martyr. Most of us here today are familiar with that word martyr. I know that the students from Harvest here especially are familiar with that word. A martyr is usually seen as someone who has died for the faith. But there's actually a bit more to it than that simple definition. A martyr is more specifically a person who has borne witness to the person and the work of Jesus Christ at the cost of their own life. They spoke about who Jesus was, what he had done, and how he had fulfilled prophecy right from the time of his birth 
to his ascension and beyond. The first place that we can find this word used in reference to someone who has died for their faith is when we run into the description of Stephen by the Apostle Paul in the context of his prayer to Jesus. In Paul's prayer to Jesus, Acts 22 verse 20, he had said, And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by, consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Stephen had told the word about who Jesus was and why he had come. Even as he was being stoned to death, the last words on his lips were a cry out to our Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone knew why he was dying, and there's no doubt about it. Stephen bore witness as a martyr. Now, does that mean that we should all seek that kind of an end? No, it doesn't. We pray that if we do face such an end, we would face it looking to Christ and holding to Christ in the same way. But that doesn't mean that we need to go out of our way to look for such an end. Rather, we need to see what they were doing during that time. They were bearing witness. And we don't need to wait until these last moments of our lives to bear witness. We can do it simply living our lives from day to day. But how do we go about this? I want you to notice the interesting progression that Jesus describes here. He says, You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We see here a series of circles getting bigger and bigger and bigger. In this progression, we see Jesus speaking of us starting at home and then going outwards from there. He doesn't say to every believer, I've exclusively appointed you to go to the Gentiles. Although he does appoint Paul specifically to that task later on. But no, with every believer, he gets them to start on the home front. He gets them to speak to their fellow Hebrews in Jerusalem and Judea. To speak to those who share somewhat similar roots in Samaria, although their worship has been corrupted. And then he sends them to the ends of the earth. Likewise, we are called to remind and encourage each other, calling each other to faithfulness and love for our Lord. And our task there begins here in the home. Often we underestimate this field, yet it's one of the most important in the world. Stay-at-home moms can often be most frustrated by this. They think, what am I doing for the kingdom of God? But it begins here, in the home. On the mission field, time and time again, you hear that one of the most powerful ways that we can witness and share the gospel is through our relationships. But what we often forget is that one of the most powerful relationships in this world is that between a parent and child, the relationship of family. Mothers are particularly influential here because the children are most often exposed to them. Mothers, you're being witnesses every day to your child of who the Lord is. Are you a good witness? 
Do you speak to them and do you testify to them about who the Lord is and what he has done? Fathers, to them you're the reflection of their heavenly father. The way that they see you is often the way that they will see their heavenly father. You're the spiritual leader in the home. You're the one who should be directing your family in holiness and leading them in love. Do your children know their Heavenly Father through their interactions with you? Parents, do you make disciples of your children? Think about that now. Looking back on your time with them in the home, are they disciples growing to know Christ through you. Young people, you can have a powerful effect on your siblings. Do you ever talk about Christ with them? Do you encourage each other in your walk with God? You older young people, whether you realize it or not, as ridiculous as it might sound to you, the younger men and women in your life look up to you for an example. You may think it's ridiculous, but it's true. Is what you think is cool, something that you would want younger people to do as well. You can have a powerful impact. Do the younger people in your life look to you and see a cool, rebellious young person and say, I want to be like that? Or do they see a young person who loves their ascended Lord, who recognizes him as king in their life, and who wants to live it out? Do they see that in your life? Do they see a young person who builds others up, always pointing them to their ascended Lord? Brothers and sisters, it begins on the home front. And there's a good reason for that. How can you possibly expect to comfortably bear witness about our ascended Lord? How can you expect to speak about him if you can't even do it on the home front? Christ has ascended, and with his ascension came his being seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty as Lord over all. Does that begin for you in your life and in your home? We read in passages like 1 Peter 3 verse 15, in your heart set apart Christ as Lord, Lord being the one who rules, the one who reigns, the one who is king, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give reason for the hope that you have. Have you already recognized Christ as Lord in your own heart? And is it noticeable in the home that you've done this? Boys, girls, husbands, wives, is this noticeable? Do you bear witness to Jesus Christ as your ascended Lord, already beginning by showing it through your life, through your teaching and your words in the home? If you do, and if it has already become a lifestyle for you to intentionally speak about this and intentionally disciple your children in the home, then suddenly the language that we use becomes a lot less foreign to our tongues when we reach out to those who are around us. 
in our homes, in our church, and in our communities. Suddenly it becomes a lot more natural to speak about the faith because it's something you're already doing. Because you have recognized Christ as Lord here and now. You recognize Him as Lord in your home. So to recognize and bear witness to Him as Lord in your community around becomes a lot more natural to tie in those discussions to Jesus Christ as our risen and ascended Savior. As we recognize Jesus Christ as our ascended Lord, our whole life follows. The corners of our life that we fight to keep from the Holy Spirit begin to be surrendered to His charge. Because we recognize that we don't have authority over them. And we're beginning to recognize that more and more as we confess it with our mouths. We confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. And if we truly confess it with all sincerity, then by the power of the Spirit we can see our hearts transforming as well. As we read in Romans 10 verses 9 to 10 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and with your mouth that you confess and are saved. That is an assurance and a reality which comes with increasing power as we confess Jesus as Lord. And it's with that benefit the benefit of the work of the Holy Spirit that's already begun in our lives with that confession, because nobody can confess that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, we read in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. It's with the benefit of the Holy Spirit working in our lives, working this confession out, that we'll be able to reflect on that final point as well, that Christ remains with us in our task. Now, it might seem odd at first to think about the fact that Christ remains with us in our task if you're looking at it from an outside perspective. We see here, did Christ remain with his disciples? Didn't we just read about him ascending into heaven? Then how can you say he remains with us? And that's something worth reflecting on. Jesus called his disciples friends. We read in John 15, Verses 12 and following, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. But after calling them his friends... He ascended into heaven, and he didn't take them with him. How can someone who calls himself a friend do this to them? Especially in light of Mark 13, verses 12 and 13, he says, Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. If they are going to face all of this, how can Jesus leave them just when things are going to get especially difficult for the entire Christian church? Did he who called his disciples friends then go on to abandon them? And if he left them behind, 
then how can we think he might not leave us behind too? It's at this point that we're brought to reflect on Jesus' final promise in Matthew 28 and following. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Matthew 28, verse 18 and following. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And then he finishes that off with, and lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. He didn't leave his people behind any more than he left us behind. He's with us. As he has promised, he's with us to the very end of the age. The catechism describes him as being always with us with regards to his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit. Often we think about him being with his disciples by the Holy Spirit. And then we look ahead to Pentecost. And indeed, Jesus said in John 16, verse 7, it's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. So when Jesus leaves, he does send his Spirit. He leaves in order that he can send his Spirit to dwell in the hearts of his disciples. But the person of the Son in the Trinity is with us with regards to his divinity. After all, he was fully man. He is fully man and fully God. And without blending or separating the two persons of the Trinity, the Son and the Holy Spirit, we can rest in the assurance that Jesus is with us with respect to his divinity. As he promised, Lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Our Lord ascended up on high. And with regards to his humanity, with regards to his flesh, he's sitting there and he's reigning there. But he didn't leave us behind. He is with us. But if he is indeed with us with regards to his divinity, what was the point of ascending into heaven? Why didn't he stay with us physically? Well, there are three reasons in particular that stand out. First, we recognize that he has ascended into heaven as our advocate. He speaks on behalf of all those who put their faith in him. We read in Romans 8, verse 34, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ Jesus who died, and furthermore, who is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God who makes intercession for us. As our great high priest, he paid for our sin on the cross. And his presence in heaven with a glorified body in which its former state had experienced that bitter and shameful death on the cross, that's a constant reminder to the fact that whoever believes in him will be declared righteous in the sight of God. And the fact that he is in heaven with the flesh, with humanity's flesh, is the second benefit that we can enjoy. Because that proves to us. It gives us the assurance that God will accept humanity in heaven. After the fall, mankind became so corrupt that it was declared no one can see God and live. 
But with the payment that Christ made, that way is open for us. He has become the first fruits, as Paul describes them in 1 Corinthians 15. A guarantee that the infinite chasm that was between humanity and God has been crossed. And now mankind can come before him. Through Christ, we can enter into the throne room of God. We ourselves can now enter directly through prayer. And one day we'll be able to enter personally, physically into the presence of God without harm and filled with joy because he went there first. And third, we have that one final incredible gift. As we saw before, Jesus Christ went up into heaven in order that the Holy Spirit could be sent forth. The Holy Spirit himself is poured out on the church of God thanks to Christ having been ascended. And already in the days following Christ, we are able to later read how the Spirit was poured out in a special way to empower the church to spread the gospel to all the nations of the earth, giving fishermen the courage to speak to governors and tax collectors the boldness to confront the religious authorities. The Holy Spirit gave them strength and the words to say to speak with clarity and conviction. Brothers and sisters, today that same Spirit dwells in those who believe in Him. That same Spirit equips and empowers us. We can't be disciples, much less make disciples at home or anywhere else without Him. But with Him, we are equipped and we're given the strength, and we're given the words, and so much more. He is, at the seal of the, he is as the seal at the bottom of the document, the guarantee that Christ will be never absent from us, that he'll keep his sheep, his beloved little ones with him to the very end, and he dwells within us. Let us find courage then, in the face of Christ's ascension, to live life with conviction. Let us find courage in him to be witnesses of the ascended Lord. Let us find the courage to speak freely in our homes, in our neighborhoods, and wherever else we can have an impact, declaring that Christ is our Lord. And having accomplished that by the power of the Spirit, let us let the world know that our ascended Lord reigns. He reigns. Amen.